See you guys and girls later on. Go have a good time. And for those of you hanging around in here, would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find one in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, a couple things you, that might be helpful. One is you'll find Romans 8 in the Pew Bible on page 1002, so that'll get you there really quick. And the other thing is this, when you open the Bible to Romans chapter 8, you just might hear this noise. It's unbelievable. Don't know if you know this, Romans chapter 8, incredible. Today and the next two Sundays, we're going to be in this absolutely stunning piece of Scripture. There's two different ways to view the Grand Canyon You can view it from air, you can view it from land. Both of those views have their merits. Each has its advantages over the other. And in this way, studying the Bible is sort of like viewing the Grand Canyon. Sometimes you can study the Bible up close in small increments, focusing on the details. Or you can study the Bible sort of from far above, taking in large vistas and the beauty of the whole. Our study of Romans chapter 8 over the next few weeks will be like taking a plane over the Grand Canyon. As your docent for Romans 8, I'm going to point out some amazing things, stunning truths, life-changing majesty, And then I'm going to encourage you in the days between our gatherings to take trips down into the beautiful depths of Romans 8 to see all the details with your own eyes. If you're looking for a bit of a change to your devotion life, let me give you a challenge for the next two weeks. For the next two weeks, here's my challenge. I want you to read and meditate on Romans chapter 8 every day. I don't mean the whole chapter necessarily. I mean you take a few verses and you consider the paragraph and the sentence and the phrase and you sit with that and let the Lord our God imprint it on your heart. And if you do that for two weeks, I'm confident that at the end of your time in Romans 8, your conclusion will be, I've sat with Jesus. You want to try something different in your devotion life? Commit yourself to Romans chapter 8 the next couple of weeks. It's an incredible chapter of the Bible. It begins by reassuring us that we're not condemned. It closes by reassuring us that we're loved. It describes our new life in the Spirit. It gives strength to suffering Christians. It reminds us that we cannot be separated from the love of Christ in whom we are more than conquerors. And for all of its beauty and all of its power, all of its grandeur, do you know what Romans chapter 8 is missing? It's missing something. It's missing a command. There's not a single command to the reader in Romans chapter 8. No, thou shall or thou shall not. But rather, Romans chapter 8 tells us who we are. It doesn't tell us what to do. It tells us who we are by faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. There's something powerful in sitting with God's Word open and hearing Him say, this is who you are, my child. Now, in Romans chapter 7, 
Paul's focus there was on the law. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul's focus is on the work of the Spirit. There are 18 references to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Fourteen of those references come in the passage that we're studying today. Paul wants to get this into your head that the indwelling Holy Spirit makes a profound difference in our identity and in the way we live our lives. If you were with us last week in Romans chapter 7, you might remember that Paul described there the benefits and the limitations of God's law. And in short, on the positive side, God's law reveals our sin, but it's not the solution for our sin. Because that might leave us wondering, well, what are we going to do then? How will we combat sin in our lives? If God's law is ineffective in overcoming our sin, then where will we find help? And in the passage we're studying this morning, Paul tells us that the answer for our indwelling sin is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The believer who is in Christ also has the Spirit in them. John Stott said that the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated and sustained and directed and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. What do you know of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you have a sense that God might be far away, that maybe He's distant from you. When you pray, your prayers have to travel through galaxies and eons and whatever to maybe land someplace where God might hear Him. Do you feel overwhelmed by sin? Overwhelmed by guilt from sin? Do you worry whether or not you really, truly belong to Christ? Brothers and sisters, God the Holy Spirit lives in you to address issues like these and so many more. So my goal today is to describe what God the Holy Spirit does or accomplishes in our lives so that we will follow God in true and powerful holiness. When we leave here this morning, we should know this is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And the passage we're studying shows us five changes that the Holy Spirit brings to the believer's life. I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let me start over. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in in Christ Jesus. You need to hear that again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. This passage tells us of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. At the moment of your conversion, when you turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and you turn to Christ by faith, then and there, at the moment of your justification, God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He is not some nominal bystander, not a spectator in your life. He is an active agent of change and transformation, and He makes our lives new in five specific ways according to this passage. What sort of change does the Holy Spirit bring to the believer's life? You've got to know this. The first change the Holy Spirit brings is this. He brings a new freedom. He brings a new freedom for all those who belong to Him. Let me tell you a story from verses 1 through 4. This is your story brother, sister, Christian. Once upon a time, you were trapped by the law of sin and death, according to verse 2. Trapped by it. You were imprisoned by it. You were a rebel against God. You despised His grace and love. You lived for yourself. You were a prisoner of your own sin. You didn't like to admit that. So you would point to your observation of moral law or religious law to justify yourself. But here's the problem, according to verse 3, the law could not justify you because it was weakened by your sinful flesh. Your sin overpowered God's law. Since your observance of the law was incapable of saving you, since you could not save yourself, then who saved you? Two beautiful words in verse 3. God did. God, the one you've sinned against, the one you're a rebel against, the one you're hostile towards in your flesh, He's the one who did what was required for your salvation. And how did He do it? Again, verse 3, He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. God the Father sent God the Son in the flesh as your sin offering. 
Jesus gave his perfect sinless life for your sinful, sinful life. He, he died on the cross and three days later rose from the dead. He took your sin and death. And when you placed your faith in him, he gave you his sinless perfection and his eternal life. That's why we can say, verse 4, that the law's requirements are fulfilled in us. It's not fulfilled by our deeds as if I have accomplished all that the law requires. Can't do that. We got a chapter 7 full of that message. But rather, the law's requirements are fulfilled in us because Christ is the law giver. He is the perfect law keeper. And since he has fulfilled them, we have fulfilled them by our union with him. Do you know what that means? If the law's requirements are fulfilled and if God has done the work to save us through his son, Jesus Christ, it means verse 1 is true. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. If Christ is yours, these four verses are your story. This is your testimony of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You are saved. You are not condemned. You're not condemned. God doesn't hate you. He doesn't despise you. He doesn't threaten to take away your salvation if you mess up. He isn't still trying to make up his mind about you as if he's waiting to see how things are going to play out. He hasn't tricked you into thinking that you're saved just so he can send you to hell at the end of it all. You are not condemned. Verse 3 says your sin is condemned. You're not condemned. Some of you need to write that in permanent marker on your bathroom mirror and the inside of your car's windshield and on your refrigerator and on your television screen and you need to tattoo it on your forearm and backwards on your forehead so when you look in the mirror you can see it. You are not condemned brothers and sisters by your faith in Jesus Christ and you respond with but I struggle with sin of course you do you're not in heaven yet that's the journey of sanctification and you respond with but I don't feel saved I mean praise God our salvation is based on God's promises not my fleeting feelings and you say sometimes I struggle with doubt Hey, the most Christian prayer you can pray is, God, help me with my unbelief. You're not condemned. You're forgiven and set free. And so what do we do with that freedom? Here's what we do with that freedom. It produces in us a gratitude that results in holiness, a pursuit of obedience. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. I'm going to pursue Christ in my life. Paul uses the phrase, when you walk in the Spirit. That's very present tense language. A very literal sense of, I'm going to walk, I'm going to travel. I've got to go someplace, I've got to do something, I've got to breathe in, I've got to exhale. And as I do these things, I'm doing it with the Spirit of God in me. I'm going to strive towards holiness with Him. The Spirit in you frees you from sin so you can walk in holiness. Christian, with God the Spirit in you, you have a new freedom, a freedom you've never had before. That's not the only new thing you have when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. Second, you get a new mind. In verses 5 through 8, you get a new mind. In these verses, Paul describes 
two ways of thinking. One is positive, one is negative, one is pleasing to God, the other is not pleasing to God. These are two mental defaults. Every human being falls in one of these two categories. There's no third way on this. Either we have a mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. So let's start by seeing how Paul describes the the negative side, the mind of the flesh. So in verse 5, he says people who think this way are those who live according to the flesh. They have their minds set on the things of the flesh. Now, why does Paul use the term flesh here? I think he uses it in contrast to the word spirit. We have God's spirit. We have our bodies, our flesh. Flesh is often a negative term in Scripture. It's not that our bodies are bad. It's that the things we do are sinful. But it's shorthand for a sinful person, shorthand for someone who is still in Adam, not yet in Christ. Uh, And so in, in this sense, Paul's describing a person who is still in their sin. This is a person who does not belong to God. This is not a Christian who is struggling with sin. This is someone who does not know Christ. And so, uh, in verse 6, the mindset of the flesh is death. Since that person is owned by their sin, they're bound for death and their minds are wrapped up in death. In verse 7, the fleshly mind is hostile to God and does not submit to God. And in verse 8, this person cannot please God. That person will do some good things by the ways in which we consider things to be good. This person can create beautiful things, amazing art, beautiful sonatas, amazing music, all kinds of things that that human beings are capable of that are incredible and thoughtful and that may flirt with the transcendent. But all they do is flirt, never grasp. Those who create beautiful things with a mind set on the things of the flesh get a glimpse of God in the shadows, but they never know Him the way the person who has the Spirit in them knows God. And so in contrast to the mind of the flesh, verse 5 says that those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. In verse 6, that mind is focused on life and peace. Every negative thing said of the fleshly mind in verses 7 and 8 is reversed for the person who has the mind of the Spirit. They're not hostile to God, they are friends of God. They don't resist God, they submit to God. They don't displease God, they please Him, they make God glad. And so what does it mean tangibly to have this sort of new mind? Well, it means that our thinking is not simply about what we want, but our thinking is bent towards obedience for the glory and the gladness of God. We're set free from sin at the beginning of chapter 8 for the purpose of obedience, holiness, and we're given a new mind, the mindset of the Spirit, so that we would obey and pursue holiness. Now, this new mind from God, it is both a gift received and it is a gift in process or in development. So you might sit there and think, I don't feel like I have the mind of the Spirit. When I drive, I think really bad things about my fellow drivers. Or I'm at work, or I get into an argument, or uh, this person knows how to push my buttons. My thought, I wouldn't say my thoughts are the thoughts of the Spirit. Look, this is a gift in process. Coming up in chapter 12, Paul's going to tell the believer to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
That transformation is not a one and done thing. It is a lifelong process in our walk with the Holy Spirit. And so you're right in your assessment of your thinking that it's not what it should be. But it is only because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that your thoughts are thoughts of the Spirit. Your mindset is the mindset of the Spirit, not a mindset of death. So the Holy Spirit in you gives you a new freedom, gives you a new mind. The third thing it gives you is a new future. Now, verse 9 is very important for our doctrine of the Holy Spirit, for what we believe about the Holy Spirit. John Stott says it it highlights two essential doctrines uh, about the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9 with me in your Bible. Uh, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So what does this teach us about the Holy Spirit? First, it, it teaches us that the mark of the authentic believer is the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is true for every person who knows Christ as their Savior. The, the, the way the Holy Spirit moves in is not something that comes later down the road from our conversion. It's not something that believers pursue down the road in their walk with Christ. At the moment of your conversion, when you are justified by the declaration of God, when your life is turned to Jesus Christ, rescued by Him, then God the Spirit moves into you. This is true for every single believer. There's no such thing as a follower of Christ who is not owned by the Holy Spirit. Every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. So much so that your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit in which He dwells. So to know Christ and to have the Spirit are one and the same. And the second thing this verse helps us with, it it gives us some important synonyms. I don't know if you picked up on this. Look at verse 9 again. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Okay, I'm in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, makes sense. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, wait, what is that? How many spirits we've got going on here? We've talked about God the Spirit. Now we've got the Spirit of Christ. What's happening here? Well, these are some important synonyms. They mean one and the same thing. We've already seen that being in the Spirit is the same as having the Spirit in us. Wrap your mind around that. I'm in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in me also. But now the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Christ. So I'm in Christ by union with Christ. I'm also in the Spirit. I have a union with the Spirit. Those aren't two different unions. It's the same union. But also the Spirit is in me. And also the Spirit of Christ is in me. Those aren't two different spirits. It's one and the same Spirit. There's this beautiful union between the believer and the triune God and the synonyms in verse 9 help bring that to light for us. This is not meant to confuse the persons of the Trinity, but rather, as one theologian put it, God the Son and God the Spirit are distinguishable from each other, but inseparable. So what the Father does, He does through the Son. And what the Son does, He does through the Spirit. And wherever each is, the others are also. You got all that? Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? What a great job I've done explaining this morning. Romans 8, in your quiet time this week, sit with it and spend more time on it. You're in Christ, in the Spirit. The Spirit's in you. The Spirit of Christ is the same. 
Here we are, the triune God, all wrapped up in our conversion. Well, then verses 10 and 11 are both if-then statements. And they say essentially the same thing. There's a bit of nuance between the two. But verse 10 says, if Christ is in you, then the Spirit gives you life. Verse 11, similarly, if the Spirit is in you, then He will bring your mortal bodies to life. What's Paul talking about there? Well, he isn't talking about life in the present day, but life on that resurrection day. His focus is on your future. A judgment day, a resurrection day, the day you stand before the throne of God. Today, we enjoy a freedom from condemnation. And we also await resurrection and the transformation of our bodies in the future. That future day is guaranteed by the Spirit of God in you. How do you know that when you stand before God, He'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. How do you know? How can you have confidence in the here and now that the then and there belongs to you by your faith in Jesus Christ? How? It's by God the Spirit in you. He has given you and guarantees you a new future. Christian, if someone were to ask you, how do you know God's going to let you into his glory at the end of days? Here's your answer. God the Spirit guarantees it to me. God the Spirit reassures me, tells me over and over that I'm His and He's mine. God the Spirit is the down payment, the deposit on my eternity. That future day is guaranteed to you because of the Spirit of God in you. The ultimate destiny of your body is not death. It is resurrection, and we know this for certain because God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Look at all these things God the Holy Spirit changes and is giving us. He's giving us a new freedom, a new mind, a new future. Fourth, God the Holy Spirit gives us a new battle. In verses 12 and 13, he speaks about our own battle against our personal sin. In the previous section, verses 9 through 11, Paul looked at our future. But here in verses 12 and 13, he brings the focus back to our present day. So look at verse 12. He says, Brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. It's true that as a believer you're not condemned. It's also true that until we see Jesus face to face, we are going to battle with our own sin. Your sinful nature will woo you, but you owe it nothing. You're under no obligation to your dead sinful self to Follow that wooing to give in to those temptations. You owe your flesh nothing. So Christians, don't listen to it. Don't entertain it. That's the way of death. It's the old way in which you lived before you knew Christ. But So now, according to verse 13, you are to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is in you to give you victory in your day-to-day battle with your ongoing sin. Paul tells us, put to death, kill the deeds of the Spirit. What does that mean? How do you do that? How do you put it to death? Well, what that means is to take away sin's strength or vigor or power so that it cannot exert any more action of its own. Paul is comparing indwelling sin to a living person or talking about it as if it's a living person, a tempter who is crafty and subtle and destructive. And Paul says this, that that tempter must be killed. 
put to death, to have its power, life, vigor, strength taken away by your battle with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as your guide, as your strength, as your holy protector, protecting you from your sin. So since we are not condemned, in verse 1, we're to do battle against our sin by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit holds us for that future day when we'll be free from sin's presence. And He steadies us in this present day so we can be free from sin's power. John Owen, in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, says this is how we fight our sin. This is how we put it to death, mortify it. He says we do it habitually and we do it constantly. Your battle against sin is not random skirmishes, just ambushes that pop up out of nowhere. What we're talking about is ongoing, relentless assault against the enemy that would destroy you and those you love. This is not reactionary warfare. This is an advance an offensive thrust, you are making the push for your holiness and against your sin as you put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. And so if you are a believer who is currently, actively engrossed in grievous sin, stop now. Hear the grace of God in this call to repentance. By the Spirit of God in you, see your sin for what it is in all of its deception and death. Run from it today and into the arms of your Savior who will lead you in your repentance. I've never met a Christian on the other side of deep sin that said, I'm happy because of it. Happiness was the temptation that led to it in the first place, and it's never delivered. Your soul is mangled. Relationships hurt. The image of God marred in you when you give yourself to this old death. But you're not condemned. God loves you. You have an advocate in Jesus Christ. When you're unfaithful, He's faithful and so he calls you today to return to his grace, return to his compassion and mercy. And if you sat there and thought to yourself, oh man, I'm glad I'm not stuck in grievous sin. The tempter is so crafty and so effective that just a little bit of his poison can wreck a life. Do not think you are beyond his attack but brothers and sisters, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. If you are a believer who is still reeling from past grievous sin, listen, you, you have to know, brother and sister, you are not condemned. You are not defined by God by the worst of what you've done, but rather you are defined by Christ's love at the cross. Your value is determined by Him. And so as you work through your ongoing remorse, do so by matching it with the compassion and mercy of Christ. Let His Spirit in you assure you that the victory is won, your cleansing is true, 
and you belong to him all the way. The Holy Spirit in us is giving us new freedom, a new mind, a new future, a new battle, fifth and finally, a new identity. Verses 14 through 17 speak of the new identity we have because of the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 14, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. What does that mean to be led by the Spirit of God? It's passive language. You're led, we're the passive one, the Holy Spirit is the active one, we're led by the Spirit of God. To be led by the Spirit is to be surrendered to the ways of God. If we're being led, it means we're following, and those who are led by the Spirit, we're told, are God's sons. If I'm a female reader, I might consider uh, putting and daughters out to the side of that sentence. I appreciate that in Bible translation, like a translator has a choice at this point. Paul uses gendered language. He uses the term son. Does he mean this is only for a male reader? That's not what he means. But I appreciate translators who, when they come to verses like this, they keep the author's original language and intent there and there, uh, then and there. He gives us the gendered language, and then as a female reader that comes upon uh, male language, I know I'm, I'm included here. Those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. How so? Well, the Spirit of God that took up residence in you is not a spirit of slavery and fear. All right, look at what verse 15 says. It says, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Salvation is not simply a business transaction, but rather it's where spiritual orphans are brought into God's family. We're given a new identity and we begin a new relationship with Him. Now, in the ancient Roman world, uh, Social elites would often use adoption to secure a successor for their name or their fortunes. And the adopted child frequently experienced an increase in social status and an increase in honor through the adoption. And so Paul's original audience, many of whom were slaves and freedmen and foreigners, they would have heard it as good news that they were adoptive sons and daughters of the one true God. I don't know why in so much of our media, adoption is used many times in a negative, it's portrayed in a negative way. So you have the adopted child who has the rotten adoptive parents and, and, and the child has to overcome. And there's something compelling in that story, but it doesn't make a lot of sense for real life because of the absolute beauty and glory of adoption. And as you know, I have, my wife and I have two biological daughters and two adopted daughters. And our adopted daughters, I've told you this before and it makes sense to say it again now, they are not partial Busbies. They're not Busbies in formation. They're not my daughter's light, but the biological daughters are my real children. Sometimes people have said that, not meaning to cause offense, but hey, how good that you have your own kids. Yeah, I got four of my own kids, not two. I got four. They're my kids. By adoption, these are my daughters. My name is their name. Everything I have is theirs. My life is lived for them because these adopted children are my children. They're all mine, 100%. And so it is in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. You are His adopted child. 
Not a child in formation. Not one who gets partial credit or just a little bit of access to his glory and kingdom and majesty and might. Everything that is his is yours. And so we get to approach him and pray the same words that Jesus prayed with nails in his hands and feet. He prayed from the cross, Abba, Father. The word Abba is an Aramaic term. Pater, Father, is a Greek term. These are the ways that children spoke to their dads in the home. It's language of, of intimacy and nearness and familiarity. And so you don't come and pray and say, O oh, thou high, exalted, distant one. You say, Abba, Father, I need you. And your Father hears you. And He loves you. You don't have to come and say, Oh, mighty one, please be kind and good to me. He's your Father, not your boss. Not the police officer that pulled you over. He's your Father. And so pray that way. We have this access to Him. Abba, Father, He gives us the right to relate to Him as a small child does with her father in trust and intimacy and joy and beauty and glory. And not only are you His child, verse 17 says, you are His heir and a co-heir with Christ. All that the Father has belongs to you. And that's good. Because verse 17, we're heirs and co-heirs with Christ, even though we face suffering in this life. You want to talk about a left turn here? We're just rocking along. Not condemned. Oh man, I'm, I'm going to battle my sin. He's my Abba Father. I'm going to suffer. Where does that come from? Here in the midst of all of this warm language, suffering is thrown in, and I'm glad that it is, because to be a son or daughter of God does not exempt one from suffering. But being his child means we understand suffering and we endure suffering in a different way. These two things are true. You have nothing to fear, and you will face suffering. And we don't face it with dread, but with a sense of its powerlessness and its temporary nature how many times have we tried to make sense of suffering by concluding that God must not be for us however according to Paul suffering is evidence of our belonging to him we will suffer with him here and we will share in his glory there we're never without him in our suffering, we are with Him. He is with us. And in glory, we are with Him. C.S. Lewis once said that he knew what two words every believer would say upon entering heaven. Of course. Of course. Oh, it, suffering here, glory there. This is, this is what it's all about. So Christian, when God the Holy Spirit moves in, everything is made new. Paul showed us five things that are made new by the indwelling Spirit. We have a new freedom granted by the Spirit. We have a new mind that's set on the things of the Spirit. We have a new future that is secured by the Spirit. We have a new battle that is fought with the Spirit. And we have a new identity that is confirmed by the Spirit. And here's something curious about God the Holy Spirit. 
Though he has all power, he is gentle. He will not force us into his ways. He will lead us. He will not drag us. And so it is possible for a Christian to quench the Holy Spirit. That's language we don't use a lot. But it's biblical language. Paul uses this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Think of the Holy Spirit like a fire. It's a fire that comes to us, either to be fanned into full flame or to be doused and extinguished with the water of human fear or control or sin or even just simply really rotten theology. And so could you look at Romans 8, 1 through 17 and respond in a way that quenches the Spirit? You absolutely could. We could have sat through all of this, read all of these glorious truths about who we are by faith in Christ and pour the water of sin or doubt or fear on the work of the Holy Spirit. There's any number of ways you can quench the work of the Spirit in your life. How can you know that's happening? Here's my advice is to hold your life up against Romans 8, 1 through 17 for examination. These five things that are articulated to us in this passage. Look, are, are you living in the new freedom with a new mind, with a secure future, battling your sin hand in hand with your Abba Father? And when you see places where your life does not match with your identity in Christ, then you know this is where I am quenching the Spirit. You need to be led by the Spirit in those areas so that you fan into flame the gift of God in you. The book of Revelation opens with seven letters from Jesus to seven different churches. He has a specific message that he wants delivered to each of those seven churches. And do you know how every one of those seven letters concludes? It concludes with the same phrase, and the phrase from Jesus is this, let anyone who has ears to excuse me let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the spirit says to the churches seven times jesus says i have a message and let the one who has ears to hear listen to what the spirit says to the churches do you have ears have you heard the spirit of god speak to our church today. You are not condemned. You are his child. And so, brothers and sisters, when you walk out of this room today, may you walk by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we praise you we confess that all too often you are our God whom we have forgotten. Thank you for dwelling in us. God, we praise you that you are this close. You are in us and we are in you. Thank you for the beauty of our intimacy together, our nearness and your nearness to us. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is that you would help us as your children to recognize who we are by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. 
God, Holy Spirit, help us to live as we are in you. Lead us into holiness and, and a grateful obedience and a nearness of relationship where we would cry out, Abba, Father, knowing that we are heard and received. And for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, Father God, would you bring new life today so that they can say with verse 1, I'm not condemned. That they can say, I, I, I don't have a mind that's hostile to God. So that they can say, by the Spirit, I'm putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So that they can cry out, Abba, Father, in their day of need. Lord, bring new life to the one who says yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.